Son of a bitch. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Um, it's a big day. Today is a big day, if I don't say so myself. There's a lot to talk about. Um, the left notched some huge victories. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to lead with that. Um... I can't wait. I gotta bite my tongue. I can't wait to jump right into it. But I gotta give you a couple teases real quick. I will be discussing the Donald Trump um, Jonathan Swan interview, which is out of this world, bro. Out of this world. Um, I also have a comparison: the United States versus other countries. How we're handling the pandemic. How much money you're getting per month. You're gonna feel a whole bunch of things when I when I break that down for you. Then we have. Um, RootsAction.org is a left-wing group that backs Bernie and attacks Joe Biden, and uh, it seems like they are now in the settle for Biden category in their own respect, and they released an ad about it, so we'll talk about that. Um, And then later on in the show, we'll make fun of Trump because he doesn't know how to say the word Yosemite. (laughs) I'm not above it. I'm not above it. Um, So anyway, without further ado, let's get started and... um, The good news commences. The good news commences. So the left got some much-needed, really good news last night. Um, There's actually a few pieces of good news. So the first one is Rashida Tlaib absolutely crushed her primary opponent. Um, There's something that's just so wonderful about this because – And this happened in the lead-up to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's race as well. You had, like, CNBC and a lot of these main networks, they were acting like, oh, oh, this is probably going to be a close race. (laughs) Trying to make it seem like the 
establishment centrist primary opponents, you know, would have a chance. And not only did they not have a chance, they got smoked, son. So she basically doubled the vote count of her primary challenger. And um, the establishment and the corporatists are going to have to learn to live with Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and uh, Ilhan Omar, and a a bunch of the Justice Democrats. Because once they're in there, they ain't going anywhere, dog. So they think that they're more unpopular than they really are. And, you know, I've always maintained, I think that if the Justice Democrats really honed in on, like, the economic issues and and the health care issue, and, like, the issues that affect everybody, then, you know, even the smears would have a hard time sticking, even in audiences that are, that totally disagree with them, like on Fox News, if they really honed in and focused on those economic issues where they have the overwhelming majority of the American people behind them, um, they'd, they'd be untouchable. But the fact of the matter is they're not really just honing on the economic issues, and at least in Democratic primaries, they're totally untouchable. So, you know, it's wonderful news that she crushed her challenger. The media tried to make it seem like it was going to be a close race and maybe Rashida Tlaib would be beaten. Um, I love that. So she crushed her. The next thing is, um, in Missouri, they had a vote on the Medicaid expansion. Now, one of the reasons why, you know, as time has gone on, I've warmed more and more to the idea of having direct ballot initiatives is because when you look at the results of the direct ballot initiatives in all the respective states around the country, you find out very quickly when you ask people issue-by-issue questions, the overwhelming majority of the time, they're super reasonable, and they have common sense, and they, they pick the thing that is in everybody's best interest. Now, it's not perfect, but usually when, you know, we lose a direct ballot initiative, it's honestly because of a giant propaganda campaign that's launched by big money, issue, big money um, industries, big money lobbying groups on the other side of the issue. So this happened a handful of times with marijuana. This happened, I believe, with some pharmaceutical drug issue in California recently. But I'm telling you, if you do an analysis, an objective analysis of all of the direct ballot initiatives, it's got to be at least seven or eight out of ten times. So 70 to 80 percent of the time, the, the position that helps the most people wins. So that makes me want to have more direct ballot initiatives. I've been pushing for a direct ballot initiative at the federal level where every time we vote in a presidential election, every four years, we don't just vote for president. It's like you vote for president and whatever the top five issues are that are on the ballot. And that might include getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan, legalizing marijuana at the federal level, raising the minimum wage. If we did this, it would be a way around all the corruption. And it would be a way for people, regular people, to have their voice heard. And we would govern a hell of a lot more reasonably than the corrupt idiots who are usually in charge of the government. So they voted on Medicaid expansion in Missouri. You know what happened? They voted to expand Medicaid. Because when you give people the option, hey, are you in favor of more health care or less health care? People usually go, that's a pretty stupid question. I'm going to go with more health care. So now over 200,000 people are going to get health care. Poor people, because it's Medicaid, they're going to get health care. Um, early on, the vote was crushing. It was like 70% or something in favor of 
um, the Medicaid expansion, it ended up winning with like 53 or 54% of the vote. So it was a little closer than, you know, I would have guessed. But nonetheless, we still won. The Medicaid expansion still won. So that's, guys, that's, I can't even put into words how amazing that is because this directly impacts the lives of so many people. Like, this literally saves lives. The fact that they're now going to expand Medicaid um, in Missouri, it saves lives. So, you know, this is what it's all about. This is what good governance is all about. It's so important. Um, so, but I saved the best story for last. And you can see the graphic over my shoulder here. A little hint, as well as probably the title of the video. Uh, but Cori Bush, the original Justice Democrat. Now, she lost her election the last time, the first time she ran. In fact, if I'm being honest, she kind of got a little crushed. She only got like 30 or 35 percent of the vote the last time around. She ran again. Not only did she win, she defeated a political dynasty. So there was all this like, you know, redistricting, hard word to say. And, you know, Lacey Clay, the opponent, like his dad ran the district, was the congressman from the district for a really long time. He's been in Congress for so long now. And I remember when we launched Justice Democrats, and this was literally the first Justice Democrat was Cori Bush, number one. Um, I remember the reaction. The reaction from everybody, not just mainstream media, but even other so-called progressive groups. They were like, <laughs> so you're going to go after somebody who's in the Congressional Black Caucus, who is not the most corporate of the corporate Democrats, and you're going to go after a political dynasty. They, they look at us like we were crazy. They're like, what, like, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you doing? And then, of course, came the accusations of like, oh, they're not team players and, you know, they're actually helping Republicans or whatever. All nonsense, all nonsense, all nonsense, all nonsense. But Cori Bush, this is her second time running. She never gave up. By the way, they tried to get other progressive groups to back Cori Bush. The other progressive groups, nowhere to be found. Crickets. Do you want to know why? Because a lot of the progressive groups, they don't actually make the decisions based on the issues. Based on, hey, who's better when it comes to policy, and let's do everything we can to elect somebody who's best on policy. No. Other progressive groups, well, we have to take in some pragmatic and practical considerations, and we have to take in some careerist considerations, and we have to, you know, form alliances and allegiances wherever we can, and it's a whole, you know, corrupt game where it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and it just so happens that the longer you're in the game, the more you overlook terrible decisions made by these politicians, and it becomes not about the issues. Well, Cori Bush ran again, and she never gave up. And she is an activist and an organizer. She literally, she's out there in the streets all the time. She leads movements. That's what she does. She never gave up. Even when other so-called progressive organizations were like, we're not going to endorse her, we're not going to help her. It was Corey, and it was Justice Democrats, and she ran again, and she won. 
She defeated Lacey Clay and a political dynasty. Now, this one, this feels just honestly just as big as the unseating of Joe Crowley when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat Joe Crowley. And listen, it's getting to the point where there are many instances of it's undeniable now. I love when, when I was on that Politicon panel and you had um, Joe Lockhart, corporate Democrat extraordinaire, who's literally done, you know, lobbying for authoritarian dictatorships overseas, like Saudi Arabia, theocracies. I remember arguing with him, and we were throwing back and forth statistics, and he was basically trying to say, like, almost like, give it up, the left doesn't win. And I had a whole bunch of numbers there that were, to me, were amazing. Like, Justice Democrats, we won, like, 40% of our primaries or something to that effect. We have, like, nine, maybe ten Justice Democrats in Washington, D.C. now. And I, I was looking at that like, that's definitely a success. Never mind all at the local level with the, the DSA victories, for example. Like, what more do you want? And that's the point, is this, this group didn't exist before 2016. It was created after the 2016 election. It's a brand new group. The group has a permanent monetary disadvantage because they don't take any corporate PAC money. Permanent monetary disadvantage. It's all grassroots. So what more did you want? We're at a permanent money disadvantage. We're at a name recognition disadvantage. It started with me, Cenk Uger, Shoykot Chakrabarty, and Zach Exley. So like former um, Bernie Sanders staffers and me and Cenk, a ragtag group, kind of like put it out there, tried to build it up. And then now it's a lot more established. But bottom line is how many victories would they need to say, oh, this is actually a thing. And they've been underestimating everybody for a long time. I mean, I remember the tweet that now comes back up every time a Justice Democrat wins, this tweet resurfaces where they said, like, they're not primary to anybody. Nobody's afraid of those nerds. Tell that to all the corporate Democrats who were ousted, because there's a number of them now. So, you know, Jamal Bowman is another good example of a lefty unseated Elliot Angle. Listen, it's a trend, dog. It's a trend. I like what Ken Klippenstein said. He said something along the lines of, how much longer until we stop viewing these as like, you know, bombshell, like amazing upset victories and just change our conception of what's possible? Because apparently it's possible. But, but listen, this gets to one of the main points. I've said this on the show in different contexts before, but if you keep showing up, they cannot deny you. If you keep showing up, they cannot deny you. Guys, it's such a high percentage of life is just like, just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. Because most people are going to tap out at a certain point. And if, you're just, if you just keep showing up, something's going to happen. Some doors are going to open up. And this is exactly what Cori Bush did. When you look up persistence in the dictionary, she's there. And um, she has an amazing story, by the way, an amazing story. She's a nurse. She was homeless. Um, They used terrible smear tactics going after her for her financial troubles, probably backfired, by the way. So what I want to do now, and I'm telling you, this makes me feel so good. I want to go back. What we're going to see here, this is an announcement of 
Cori Bush's campaign. This is on my show, and Jenk also did it on, on TYT, but I remember when we were having the meetings, I'm like, okay, when are we going to roll out our first Justice Democrat? And we, we settled on the date. And so um, this is me announcing to you guys the very first Justice Democrat. I believe this is like a week after I did the whole spiel about what Justice Democrats is all about, what the goal is, what we're trying to do, and how we're going to make a difference and all this stuff. But this is when we're launching the first Justice Democrat ever, Cori Bush. Here's what I said about it. This is May in 2017. Today is a day full of uh, very exciting announcements for you guys. So I'm going to present to you Justice Democrat candidate number one. So she's running in Missouri's first district. Her name is Cori Bush. Let me play for you a quick little bio about her. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you why we love her and who she's running against. My name is Cori Bush. I'm a nurse, an ordained pastor, a social justice advocate, community activist, and hopefully soon, one of your elected officials. I'm a parent. Uh, I'm a single parent. So I understand uh, walking through taking care of children by yourself. I understand what that daily routine is like. Um, I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and then on top of living paycheck to paycheck to wonder about your future and the future of your children. It's not about the title. Um, I just want to be in a position where I'm able to help people on a larger scale. I've been able to do it on a small scale with no name, no money. And this is why I'm running for United States Congress to represent Missouri's first district. So Corey is, of course, taking no corporate money and no PAC money because she's a Justice Democrat and she fully, fully understands just how much uh, big money and corporate money has corrupted our system, and she refuses to be a part of that corruption. She's running because he, she actually cares about the people in her district, and she has a track record of fighting for the people. So no corporate money, no PAC money. She's in favor of Medicare for all. She's in favor of free college. She's for ending the drug war and reversing mass incarceration. Uh, she's for making the minimum wage a living wage. And she was an early backer of Bernie Sanders. And she even went as far as to speak at uh, some of his rallies. So when I tell you I couldn't be more excited about her, I mean it. She is a perfect, perfect candidate. Uh, now, who is she running against? Well, she's running against a congressman named Lacey Clay. Why does he have to go? Because some people might say, well, look, I mean, isn't he somewhat progressive? Isn't he, you know, he's not the worst of the worst when it comes to the corporate Democrats, so why is uh, he being targeted? Well, there's a few reasons. So uh, Representative Clay voted against an amendment to limit military surplus transfers to local cops in 2014. So do you understand what that means? That means that even though he represents Ferguson, he's a backer of police militarization. That is flat out inexcusable. 
That clip goes on for a while longer, by the way. Now, she's a congresswoman, and he's been defeated. She didn't win the first race. It was the second time she ran, and she won. You know, I also think we um, underestimate, guys, how important it is, how important name recognition is. Like, so if you run for office once and you don't win, and you run a second time and you don't win, like, it's very possible that by the fourth or fifth or sixth time you win. Now, the hard thing is, of course, everybody has to pay the bills and everybody needs money, and you can't just, you know, it's so hard to juggle normal life keeping the lights on with trying to run for office, which is such a giant undertaking. But my point is, sometimes people feel that sting of rejection the first time, and they're just like, I'm done, I'm tapping out. But if you keep showing up, they won't deny you. They won't deny you. So, you know, Jessica Cisneros, by the way, if she runs again, if she runs three or four times, at some point she's definitely going to win. She almost won the first time, okay? So... Keep going, keep going, keep showing up. And I actually think that's one of the tricks that the wealthy have been able to pull off, which is you need a lot of money in order to run for office. You need a lot of money for your campaign, but also you need a lot of money in the bank to be able to keep the lights on, like I was alluding to. So it's almost like they know that, and they know how hard it is for regular people with an average income. They know how hard it is for them to run. So they already know the trick of like, oh, if I just keep running, eventually I'll win. So, and then listen, on top of all that, don't get it twisted. I'm not just talking about, you know, the dynamics of the race from a non-substantive perspective here, because I'm a true believer that, especially when we're talking about the issues that people agree with us on, then you're likely to get elected even sooner. You know, it's very rare you have somebody running for office who's a a true representative of the people, and that's who Cori Bush is. And so she won. She won her second time. And it's just, it makes me so happy to see this. I'm so happy for her. I'm so happy for us. I mean, this is another vote for Medicare for All. Another, a real vote for Medicare for All. That's amazing. Um, Now, I do want to show you one more clip here. So this was all the way back in May of 2017. Talking, launching the first Justice Democrat, the OG Justice Democrat, Um, Next, I want to show you, we're going to fast forward here. I believe this one was from 2018, this clip that you're about to see. This is me going on Fox News. I forget what the issue was that they said we're going to talk about. But sprung Cori Bush on me and said, like, okay, defend that, Kyle. They thought it was like a gotcha. They thought they were tripping me up because Cori was calling for, you know, raising taxes on the rich. I was like, are you kidding me? Yummy in my tummy. Watch. Uh, Tuesday's primary in Missouri, Cori Bush, Democratic Socialist, taking on Lacey Clay, longtime Democratic uh, congressman. There comes a question, though, in terms of how palatable across the board these folks are, not just in primaries. Interview with Cori Bush from about two weeks ago, and then we'll get your guys' reaction. Roll it. The wealthy should pay their fair share. Yes, wealthy okay, should pay their fair share. What is a fair share? What percentage? So you're saying that 40, you're, you're saying that they're paying their fair share is what you're saying. No, I'm so, asking what percentage is a fair share. What fair share would you like to change the tax rate to on the wealthiest, what percentage of Americans, so it's a fair share? So let's say the wealthy 1% could pay, let's say if they pay 
Let's just give them 45%. Uh, Kyle, uh, is that the future of the Democratic Party? I hope it's the future of the Democratic okay. Party. Jeff, Jeff Bezos has over $100 billion at the same time that we have 60,000 homeless veterans in this country and 400,000 homeless Americans. And the American people, again, to go to the polls, overwhelmingly want to raise taxes on the rich, overwhelmingly want to raise taxes on Wall Street corporations. I'm talking about 58% of Americans. And so if your strategy is to defend the rich, by all means, go right ahead. Wow. I enjoyed that thoroughly. I enjoyed that thoroughly. <laughs> it was my pleasure to defend Cori Bush. Again, this was uh, back in 2018. She did lose that race, but now she won. Now she won. So, listen, we're on the move. We're marching along. And, um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, as the old saying goes. And I don't care how we get victories for left-wing ideas. I don't care how we end up getting Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, legalizing marijuana, so on and so forth. I don't care how we win. But we're going to win. We have to win. So let's keep fighting. And, um, you know, whether it's candidates like Corey winning, and make no mistake about it, this was an upset. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw it coming. Um, I don't care if it's this, I don't care if it's through more direct ballot initiatives where we win on the specific issues, but we got to keep fighting and we got to keep moving forward because we don't have the option of just kind of sitting it out. Because I don't know if you noticed, I don't know if you looked around, but things are an absolute disaster. Things are a complete mess. So we actually have the unique opportunity because it's time for a new FDR type moment. It's time for a radical redistribution of wealth, because there's been a reverse Robin Hood going on for a long time now, and people are getting screwed. Nearly, nearly 40% of the country can't pay their rent. So people are going to be open to a new direction. And the question will be, do they go what's viewed as fringe right or so-called fringe left? The so-called fringe left is really just common sense, social democratic ideas that are moderate internationally. But that's going to be the question. Which way are we going to go? So we all need to step up for the moment and be prepared for it. Because, again, TikTok, it's coming. Next. Jonathan Swan of Axios interviewed President Trump, and it was really an incredible interview. Um, I recommend you watch the whole thing. I think it's like 40 minutes or so. He actually asked decent questions, and he's aggressive. There are some questions I think the framing was way off, but the sentiment was I'm going to actually ask real questions, and it wasn't, you know, typical let's hold hands and sing kumbaya nonsense that happens most of the time with the media, especially when you're sitting face-to-face with politicians. Um, and it wasn't the kind of anti-Trumpism that is just annoying, like the – you know, let's talk about tweets and stuff. It was more, let's talk about these substantive issues. So I want to show you the portion on COVID. Let's take a look and then we'll discuss. I, the, the figure I look at is death. 
and death is going up now. Okay. There's a thousand a day. If you look at death, yeah, yeah, it's going up again. Let's look. Daily death. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah, start to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than lower than what is Europe? In what? Look, in what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Do you that? have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. The cases. Why not as a proportion when of population? We have somebody, what it says is when you have somebody that yeah. has it, where there's a case. Oh, okay. The people that live sure. from oh. those cases. It's surely a relevant statistic to say if the U.S. has X population and X percentage of death of that population. No, because you have to Korea. go by the cases. Well, look at South Korea, for example. 51 million population, 300 deaths. It's like it's you crazy. Don't know that. that. I do. It's you don't know that. Don't, you think they're faking their statistics uh, South Korea? I, I want to because have a very good relationship yeah. with the country. But you don't know that. And they have spikes. Look, here's Germany, one. Germany, low, here's 9, one. Here's one right here, United States. You take anyway. the number of cases. Okay. Now, look, we're last, meaning we're first. Last? I don't know we what we're the first. Is it what? Look, okay. again, it's cases. Okay. Um, and we have cases. Because I mean, for what thousand Americans die a day. I understand. I understand on cases it's different. No, but you're not reporting it correctly, Jonathan. I think I am. But if you take a look at this other chart, look, this is our testing. I believe this is the testing. Yeah. Yeah, we do more tests. No, wait a minute. Well, don't we get credit for that? And because we do more tests, we have more cases. In other words, we test more. We have. Yeah. Now take a look. The top one, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. The top, Jonathan, if, 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 if hospital rates were going down and deaths were going down, I'd say terrific. You deserve to be praised for well, testing, they but they're all going you down. They very rarely talk. 60,000 Americans are in hospital. You watch the news and read the papers. They usually talk about new cases, new cases, new cases. I'm talking about death. Well, you look at it's death. Up. Death is way down from where it was. It's, it's a thousand death. a day. It was two and a half thousand. It went down to 500. Now it's going up death. again. Excuse me. Where it was is much higher than where it is right now. It went down, it went up. Spiked, but now it's going down again. It's, it's going, going down in Arizona. It's going down in Florida. Nashville. It's going down in Texas. Take a look at this. These are the tests. It's going down in Florida? Yeah, it's going. It leveled out and it's going down. That's my report as of yesterday. Anyway, Mr. President, if I could change something. It is going down in Arizona. It Arizona, is it is. Arizona, Arizona it is. Arizona it is. Texas and it has spiked, and it is, it did spike, and it's now going down in Florida. It's evened out and going down in Florida. I'll have to see those but, but you have to look at this. This is the number of tests compared to the rest of the world. I don't deny your figures. You've done more tests by far than the rest right. of the world. I don't and deny Because that. we've done more tests, we have more cases. You, so you can take more it, check it. Check it out. Mr. Mr. President, um, different subject. You know, Jank Uger pointed this out on Twitter. I think he's exactly right. That, like, it's tragic because of the reality of the situation. But that literally looked like a, like a curb your enthusiasm skit or like a it's always sunny in Philadelphia scene. It, it's, it was amazing. Like, imagine going back in time to, like, 2009 and saying, by the way, just so you know, in the future, Trump is going to be president. There's going to be a pandemic that kills, as of right now, about 160,000 Americans. Um, 
and then here's a back and forth that he's having with an interviewer over it. If you showed them that exact back and forth, they'd be like, that impossible. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, that's, ob- that's the fakest thing. It seems like they're acting. Doesn't it seem like they're acting? That really was like a Curb Your Enthusiasm scene. Or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I, it's amazing, man. I, I can't believe this is the real world. Now let's talk about, you know, the substance of what's going on there. Trump has the salesman instinct. And he's his own biggest fan and his own biggest advocate. So his instinct is to always go on the offense, be aggressive, and make his own case. Now, in many contexts, that salesman instinct is a massive political bonus. It helps. Because think of it like this. If there's an issue where people are persuadable, he's going to try to persuade them. But here's the problem with that instinct, and this is when it becomes a liability, when it's not an issue where people can be persuaded. So, guys, there's no denying it. We live in a country that is just being absolutely obliterated by COVID-19. There's no denying it. People have felt, everybody has felt the effects in one way or another, whether it was through the economic shutdown, whether it was through losing a job, somebody they know losing a job, you keep your job, but you have a pay cut, you know somebody who got it, you know somebody who got sick and was in the hospital, When you have 160,000 Americans dead and you have millions and millions who've had it and have experienced the effects, there is no amount of salesmanship and persuasion that can override that cold, hard reality, which is why it really is just a, a massive unmasking moment for Trump. In 2016, he was able to argue that Hillary is the establishment, Hillary is the status quo, because she is the establishment and she is the status quo. He was able to portray her as the insider and he's the outsider. She's the one who outsourced your jobs. She's the one who did the endless wars. She's the one who's corrupt and taking the money. He was able to make that case. People are like, okay, cool, let's roll the dice on this guy. But now Trump is the establishment. You've been in control, dude. You've implemented your policies. So now when something happens and his response has been abysmal, you got nowhere to go. So what do you do? You got to try to bullshit your way out of it and act like you're doing a good job. And that's, and that's deeply unserious because a real leader, part of being a real leader is acknowledging the state of affairs, acknowledging the reality and adjusting and moving forward with a plan and moving forward and, and carrying the burden with you and owning up to it and facing it and doing everything you can. You can't do that if you're denying that there, it already, that it's as bad as it is. You can't deny it's all that bad and then effectively respond because you're denying it's all that bad. So if it's not all that bad, then what is there to do? I can't really do much else now, can I? So this is, it's, this is not going to work. The number one issue in people's minds today is COVID. Trump's approval rating, I just saw the poll yesterday, Trump's approval rating on COVID, 31%. That's only his hardcore, hardcore, hardcore fans. Everybody else is like, well, obviously, this is a disaster. So it's not going to work, man. It's not going to work. And by the way, everybody knows. Like, even if you're a hardcore Trump supporter, you know he's just cherry-picking stuff and trying to use whatever argument he can to make the case that our reaction has been okay. 
Like, even you know that, even if you're the most hardcore Trump supporter. Like, he's, they're skewing the numbers and picking misleading things and say, oh, this, this is the indicator. Like, even the idea, oh, my God, the testing, oh, my God. Yeah, as a raw number, we do more tests than anybody else. As a raw number per capita, we're like 30-something in the world. You know, and by the way, there was a time when I thought I had it, I couldn't get a test. Like this idea that, oh, my God, we're, just, we're handling it so well and there's so many tests and that's why the number's so high. No, it's also because the virus is still spreading and spreading more so. There was a giant spike in, in numbers for the virus in a bunch of different states. That's why it's going up. It's not just because you're doing more testing. He makes it seem like other countries are, like, hiding the tests or something. Not true. Not true. And we've discussed... There, there, there were many ways to approach this pandemic and this disaster. He didn't do any of the things that he needed to do in order to fix it. So you could have gone, you know, the U.K. route or, or, or Germany and what they did. You know, Japan, I think, is probably the best example. Now, they've had a recent uptick, but it's because, you know, now restaurants and bars are open. So what Japan did is they had limited economic shutdowns, only the things that they had to shut down. Um, but really the main thing was universal masks. And so for the longest time, they had less than 1,000 COVID deaths. Uh, Jonathan Swan brings up South Korea. He said less than 300. So basically, if you do social distancing, universal masks, targeted economic shutdowns, then you're okay. Or if you want to do the full shutdown, you would have had to do a wage replacement system. You would have had to do the temporary nationalization of wages where you pay people like 70% of their wages and you furlough everybody, you don't fire people because now we got like 20% real unemployment. So on top of the pandemic, we have an economic implosion. And again, he's still out there trying, well, if you look at this very narrow way of viewing the situation, then maybe what we did is not all that bad. The way we're handling COVID is abysmal. It's us, Brazil, and like India responding worst in the world and we were just woefully unprepared. It's, just, it's totally inadequate, our response. And he's trying to cherry-pick little things to say it's okay. That's not going to help him. That's not going to help him. Even if he just did the Cuomo-style fake leadership with the daily press conferences, like he did at the beginning, back then his approval rating was over 50% on the coronavirus response, even though he wasn't doing much different. But he was doing the daily press briefings and making it seem like he's a leader. I'm serious and I'm tackling the problem as much as possible. But now it's just, you know, obfuscate, deny, downplay. And this, this is why, no matter what he does, he keeps dropping in the polls. This is why Biden's got like a 10-point lead. Biden! Biden! That was an incredible. I, I do feel like this is going to be one of those like legendary moments in in the Trump presidency, this interview, and this moment specifically on COVID, because it just, it's, it's just the perfect encapsulation of the point in time. Like this guy who only knows how to obfuscate and deflect and downplay to protect his ego, like now you see the deadly consequences of it, because the conversation is on a pandemic, and there's no spinning it. Imagine if it was a Democratic president and 160,000 people were dead from a pandemic, would Trump be out there like, well, if you look at this narrow way of viewing the problem, then maybe we didn't do all that bad. No, he'd be on the entire, are you kidding me? He goes after Biden ruthlessly for swine flu. And it was like, 
maximum 12,000 people dead from swine flu. And the actual, the official number I actually think is pretty, is lower than that. But he goes after Biden for that. And it's like, okay, well, yours is 160,000 so far. It's going to keep going up. So, like, what are you doing? He's in trouble. This interview was, you know, a real mask-off moment. All right, I got one more from this interview. I really like this. I really like this. So Jonathan Swan had just an amazing interview with Donald Trump. He pushed him on a really important issue. This is one of those issues where if I was interviewing Trump, I would lean in on this one as well. And his reaction says so much. Watch. wants to do is get too much involved with Afghanistan. They tried that once. It didn't work out. Too. Last question on this subject. And by the way, we're largely out of Afghanistan, as you probably know. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you, the U.S. troop level in Afghanistan right now is roughly the same as it was when no, you... No, you're wrong. Uh, no, Mr. President. I'm sorry. We have to do... Okay, are you ready? No, no. We'll I mean, be down in a very short... It's already planned. Well, well that's, the, that's a different question. We'll be down in a very short period of time to 8,000. Then we're going to be down to 4,000. We're negotiating right now. We've been there for 19 years. Oh, no, no, 19 years. But if you just let me finish my we'll question. We'll be getting out. I understand. Look, when you came in, it was 8,800. You boosted to 14,000, and now you're back down to 8,500. We're now... My question we'll to you is... 4,000. I'll give when? you the exact... Very soon. Very soon. What will be the number? Very soon? 4,000? Very soon, yes. Like how soon? I don't want to tell you that. I don't want to tell it's you big that. news. What is that? That is it's going down to 4,000, isn't it? I've always said. Well, what about, we're what about get, election day? We will get largely out. On election day, how many American troops will be in Afghanistan? Uh, probably anywhere from four to 5,000. That's almost as many as when you came into office. No, it's not. 8,000. We had much more. We had a lot of people over there, too. 8,800. A lot of people. And we did a good job. We wiped out ISIS. Have you thought about going down to zero? Let me what you don't say. We took out in Syria. We took out ISIS. We 100% of the caliphate. When I took over Obama, it was totally rampant. ISIS was all over the place. We took them out. We captured them. We killed them. 100%, 100%, not 99%. Right. I want to get out at 99. Right. Everyone said, oh, please, would you stay? I stayed. 99% was good, but 100% of the caliphate. We took out Soleimani. We took out al-Baghdadi. We took out people that nobody thought possible. Al-Baghdadi was the biggest terrorist of them all. They couldn't find him. I took him out. Soleimani, even bigger. I took him out. I've done things that no other president's done. None, I mean... Fortunately, not too many. They should have never been in the Middle East. The decision to go to the Middle East and get into the Middle East was the single biggest mistake made in the history of our country. That's my opinion. Every part of that was incredible for a variety of reasons. He, he's a mess. That, that's, it's totally contradictory. Like his, his thoughts on this are totally contradictory. So let's walk through it. From the beginning, he says, Listen, Jonathan, we have to get out. We have to get out. We've been there 19 years. We have to get out. Um, and then, to, to his credit, Jonathan Swan breaks down the timeline. He says, listen, when you got into office, there were 8,000 American soldiers in Afghanistan. You made it 14,000. You did a troop surge. And then now, just recently, you brought it back down to about 8,000. And then what does Trump say? You go back and listen. He says, 
uh, but, uh, Jonathan, by the time, you know, uh, we'll largely get out. Largely. It went from we got to get out to we'll largely get out. Weird. Why'd you put that weasel word in there? It went from let's get out to let's largely get out. Um, and then he asked him point blank. He says, well, on election day. On election day, how many troops are going to be in there? And Trump says, 45,000. And Jonathan Swan correctly points out, that's about the same number as when you first came into office. You came in with 8,000, you're going to leave with four or 5,000 there. How can you say you're getting us out? How can you say that? And then Trump, in typical Trump fashion, what does he do? He goes, well, now let me tell you what the fake news doesn't tell you. We did a great job. We did a tremendous job. We took out ISIS. We took out al-Baghdadi. We took out Soleimani. Now, by the way, he brings up Syria. He brings up Iran. Like, we're talking about Afghanistan. And then he pivots to, well, then we also did an amazing job intervening in Syria, intervening in Iran, intervening in Iraq. And, he, by the way, he also lies. Oh, Soleimani's the biggest terrorist. Actually, that guy was literally fighting ISIS on the ground. So you de facto acted as an ISIS ally when you went after Soleimani. It almost sparked World War III, but I digress. But in, in the midst of making an argument about how, oh, my God, we've got to get out of the Middle East. We've been there so long. We've been there 19 years. He ends up arguing for intervention. Hold on. If it's wrong to be there, then it's wrong to be there. You can't say it's wrong to be there and, oh, my God, aren't the effects of us being there so wonderful? Because then you'd be undermining your original point, and effectively you're saying it makes sense to be there and it's right to be there because look at all these great things I did when I was there. So, and then at the end he goes, well, we should have never went in. So this, this, is, the, this is the absurd position that the so-called non-interventionists on the right, this is the position that they've boxed themselves into. We should have never went in, but now that we went in, sure, why not? Let's try to take out everybody in sight, and let's also add Syria and Iran to our list of places that we're going to intervene in and bomb in. But we should have never went in, but now that we're in, let's do a hell of a lot more, and then I'll say that maybe we'll get out, but really what I mean is I'll have four or 5,000 troops left still in Afghanistan. So we ain't getting out of Afghanistan. We ain't getting out of Iraq. We're not getting out of anywhere in the Middle East. He's adding more countries to the list. He literally just brought up bragging about killing an Iranian commander. You know, bragging about what we did in Syria. So he's not getting us out. He's keeping us in as every now and then he pays lip service to getting us out. While also talking about how great it is that we're in there and what we're doing. It makes, no, he's trying to, see, this is classic Trump. He says everything at the same time. So if you're watching that, you could be a neocon and applaud him. Why? Because he's saying we're going to stay in. I'm going to keep thousands of troops in Afghanistan. Let's talk about what we did in Syria. Let's talk about what I want to do in Iran. Let's talk about what we're still doing in Iraq. If you're a neocon, you could watch that and say, Trump's a hawk. That's amazing. And if you're a sucker who's either a libertarian or on the left or a, a so-called non-interventionist on the right, you could watch that and go, what do you mean? He said he wants to get out. He said he wants to get out. He should, said we never should have went in. He said that we're getting out. Guys, the devil is always in the details. You know, Obama used to do this too, right? Obama always used to do this. Uh, he would give a speech talking about how we're going to be out. We're getting out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And then what, what would he do? Yo-yo the troop levels. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Well, we've got to do a surge. Wouldn't it be great if we did a surge? Because then we'll definitely win the war, even though there's no definition of victory. Do a troop surge. they do the troop surge. Then they would, you know, after a while, they'd say, we're going to get out of Afghanistan. We're definitely getting out. Then they would lower the troop levels. 
but it would, the troop level would be like 8,000, like we're talking about now. And the media would go along with every step of the way. Obama says we're getting out of Afghanistan. He would yo-yo the troop levels, up, down, up, down, up, down. Trump, exact same thing. He gets in there with 8,000 troops. He surges to 14,000. He draws back down to 8,000. He says, see, I'm getting out. Isn't it wonderful? And when he's pressed on it, how many are going to be? When you get out of office, how many U.S. troops are going to be in Afghanistan? What does he say? Four or 5,000. That's not out. That is not out. You don't believe me? Let's have some Chinese troops occupy Texas with four or 5,000 people. I think you feel like it's an invasion. I think you feel like it's an act of war. <sighs> Military-industrial complex churns on. And, yes, this is very Orwellian. Peace is endless war. That's what this is. Peace is endless war. Great job there by Jonathan Swan. By the way, the rest of the media should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. Why? Because he's been in office now, Trump, for years. I've never heard this question asked before. There's a million questions I want to ask Trump that the media should want to ask Trump. Like the guy who said repeatedly he's against radical Islamic terrorism. I'm against radical Islamic terrorism. He used to bash Saudi Arabia all the time. Now he did a multi-billion dollar weapons deal with Saudi Arabia. So you said you're against radical Islam. You just funded the largest purveyors of it with weapons to the tune of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. What's that about? Trump cries all the time about, oh, my God, the Obama campaign, the Obama administration spied on my campaign. Illegal. Not okay to just spy. But in 2018, he signed the reauthorization of the Patriot Act, which allows for illegal spying. It's only when it's him. That it counts, right? So, but that's the thing is like all these questions are goddamn obvious. These are obvious questions for anybody who's paying attention and cares about the issues. But that's the point is that the media doesn't care about the issues at all, at all. So credit to Jonathan Swan for finally asking a real question. And now we get clarity from Trump. He thinks we should get out, but also brags about all the things we did while we're in. Total contradiction. Complete hypocrite. He doesn't even know what he really believes. And when he says get out, he means bring it down to four or 5,000 troops. That ain't getting out, dog. That ain't getting out. So now everybody knows. Now we have clarity. Credits to Jonathan Swan. And the rest of the media needs to step their game up because this question should have been asked a long time ago. All right, next. So just how bad are you getting screwed by your government with this coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent economic depression? The answer, the answer is stunning. So, um, there's a little graphic here. Now, this is from Beth on Twitter. Credit to Beth. But this is actually referencing a Guardian article that goes into detail about the different um, countries and their economic response to COVID-19. So look at this. This is how much money you get in stimulus in Australia. $1,993 a month. Canada, $1,433 a month. 
Denmark, it's up to $3,288 a month. Now, let me just say real quick, for these next ones that are really high numbers, it is, that, that is not for everybody. It depends on what your previous income was, what your job was, how many kids you have in some instances. So this is like, it, it's a scale, and they're giving you what the top end of the scale would be. So in France, it's up to 7575 a month. Germany, up to $7,326.78 a month. Um, Ireland, up to $1,793.44 a month. UK, up to $3,084 a month. US was $1,200, a one-time payment, to last 10 weeks. And now they're fighting over whether or not to even give us one more one-time $1,200 payment. So this is incredible, guys. This is incredible. This is one of those moments that should help radicalize you, should help you realize exactly how messed up the system is and who it is there to serve. I take you back to the CARES Act. Initially, when you had the market crash as a result of the pandemic, they instantly went into action. But where was the focus when they went into action? Business, corporations. So they did the CARES Act, giant bailout for corporations, and then they gave Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who's a Goldman Sachs lackey, he has the authority and the discretion to give away up to $5 trillion, basically handing the keys to the Treasury over to his corporate buddies. So when there's an economic downturn, they immediately left into action to do corporate socialism. Corporate socialism, but regular people, you get nothing, and then you got a one-time $1,200 payment, which is a drop in the bucket, not nearly enough, and now what's happening? Well, you already saw the numbers. You already know that 32% of renters couldn't make their payment in July. You already know that when you go state by state, some states, it's 59% in West Virginia. It's 55% in Tennessee. The lowest number in the country is 22% is Vermont. So nearly a quarter of people in Vermont can't pay their rent. So people can't pay their rent. 30 million people didn't have enough to eat last week. 28 million people could go homeless within the next year or two. But don't worry, we leapt into action. We did socialism. It was only for the wealthy and corporations. It wasn't for you. It wasn't for you at all. What did other countries do? Effectively, emergency socialism for regular people. I mean, what are we going to do? The economy ground to a halt. People can't work. We're going to furlough you, and here's, here's money, so you'll get by. And then when it's all over, you go right back to your job. That's it. That's it. Now do you see how screwed you are? This reminds me of the surfs retweeted something the other day. I loved it. It was so amazing. Um, it was a streamer. I don't know who the streamer was because you guys know I'm not, I'm not totally cool and hip and with it and with all the kids these days. I'm an old man at this point. But they retweeted somebody who, was, um, who read a comment on their stream that was like, you know, I live in uh, Sweden or something. It was somewhere, some Scandinavian place. And we have free health care here. And the guy was reading it and he's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> that everybody's reaction in America because they're not, it's almost like we're kept in the dark on purpose on how other countries do it. Now, I'm not saying other countries are perfect. Of course they're not. We still got a long way to go. There's many things we can improve on anywhere in the world, wherever you point to. Um, but in many ways, so many other developed countries have 
just advanced so far beyond us. There are countries that have free health care for everybody. It is a right. You don't have to pay anything out of pocket. Free education, free college. Paid vacation time by law. By law. I mean, a lot of Americans just truly don't know how much we're getting screwed by our government. Because our government is totally bought and owned by corporations. Well, now this will help you really wrap your mind around it. Somehow, we only got a one-time $1,200 payment to last for 10 weeks. Every other country is getting recurring payments on a monthly basis. It's quite a slap in the face, isn't it? It's quite a wake-up call. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, we are going to go after the Democrats for embracing imperialism. And they're doing exactly that. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
Son of a bitch. Alright, guys. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Alright, so we got some Democrats that um, have gone full imperialist thinking that they're owning Trump. And we're going to talk about that. All right. Let me set it up for you. Some Democrats have decided to go full imperialist in an attempt to own Trump. So first, I want to show you Susan Rice. Um, She says, a special gift to Putin and a blow to NATO. Donald Trump is not playing on America's team. And it's, she's uh, tweeting an article with it. It says, U.S. to withdraw nearly 12,000 troops from Germany in move that will cost billions and take years. So I love the implication here from Susan Rice. The implication is that, first of all, you should keep American troops in Germany forever. Um, and second of all, if you are in favor of withdrawing them, then that, by definition, means you're not playing on the American team and you're giving a gift to Vladimir Putin. So you, you, can't, you can't just have a disagreement with Susan Rice and say, you know, I don't really think it's necessary to have 12,000 U.S. troops in Germany. I don't think it's necessary. I don't even know why, why are we even wasting resources over there when we have a situation here at home We have a pandemic and millions of people don't even have health care. If you want to find ways to save, to pay for that instead, first thing you do is cut military spending and cut back on our military bases and stuff. Any reasonable person would agree to that. But no, you're pro-Putin and you're anti-American if you want to take out U.S. troops from Germany. I mean, it really is incredible. They've, the Democrats, are almost openly arguing that any kind of de-escalation, any kind of um, withdrawing of troops from anywhere, is it shows American weakness. And if you show weakness, that helps our enemies. So again, you can't just have a disagreement with Susan Rice and say, I think it's better to draw down troops because I think it's better for our country to do that. No, it has to be nefarious, it has to be pro-Putin, and it has to be weak. I mean, I'm used to these tricks. This is stuff that the Republicans say all the time, that, you know, or neocons say it, that if you want to, I want to end the wars, they act like that's weakness. No, I think it's intelligence, and it's abiding by international law, and it's moral, and it's ethical. So I hate this stuff, man. I think that this stuff is dangerous. She's rushigating just as hard now as they did previously. By the way, I don't know how people aren't embarrassed by rushigating anymore. I, I, it's amazing to me. How are you not embarrassed if you're Russiagating? Like, did you miss the whole, like, Mueller report thing? And did you miss the whole, like, yeah, we couldn't really get him on anything involving the specific thing with Russia, and he's not a Manchurian candidate, and new phone, who dis? Did you miss all that? That you didn't get anything? There were, there were corporate Democrats predicting Trump getting dragged out of the White House in handcuffs. Literally. And when people like me said that's not going to happen, I was accused of, like, being pro-Trump. 
And it's like, no, I'm trying to say that objectively, even though you want it to happen, that is not going to happen because you're wrong on the substance of the issue. That spun as being weak on Trump. Well, I was right. And there was no reckoning from these people. None. They went right back to their same old bullshit. And acted like they are just as conspiratorial as people on the right. With their whole, like, you know, the Benghazi obsession, the, the birtherism about Obama. This is the same stuff. This is the same kind of stuff. Equally untrue. But they don't admit it. They think they're holier than that. They think they're better than that. But I'm not done yet because this is just one example. I have, honestly, I think this next one may be even worse. So Chris Murphy said the following. This is in the middle of a tweet thread about Venezuela. He says, then it got real embarrassing. In April 2019, we tried to organize a kind of coup, but it became a debacle. Everyone who told us they'd rally to, to Guaido got cold feet and the plan failed failed publicly and spectacularly, making America look foolish and weak. So, in other words, God damn it, Trump didn't do the coup right. He should have done the coup properly. He shouldn't have messed up the coup and made us look foolish and weak. He messed up the coup. It was a debacle. It was a debacle. So his argument is not, hey, the United States should not overthrow sovereign governments as a matter of principle. That was not his argument. That was not his argument. His argument was, you need to do coups better. Don't make us look foolish and weak. Don't embarrass us on the world stage. Obviously, if you go to overthrow a government, overthrow it properly. This is what's called resisting from the right. You just want him to be a more competent neocon war hawk war criminal. That's what you want, Chris Murphy. See, it, again, it's amazing to me in the era of Trump, these people have no idea how they're viewed and what they're arguing for. In their mind, anything that's anti-Trump is good. So if we resist Trump from the right, that's good enough. This is why you have people like the Lincoln Project and a bunch of neocon war criminals with blood on their hands welcomed with open arms into the so-called resistance circles. We don't care that you're responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqis. You don't like Trump, and I don't like Trump. Yay! So here we are. The Democrats are resisting Trump from a more pro-imperialist argument is not let's not be imperialists that's immoral that's unethical that's against international law we're hypocrites and sometimes we are the terrorists yes i said it that's not the argument the argument is we're better at imperialism really really bad people because the sense is, this is a recurring theme we've talked about a lot recently, many people, they look at the Republicans, they go, at least they're honest about how they're barbarian, savage assholes. Whereas with the Democrats, they pretend like they're your friend. They pretend, and then they say stuff like this and do stuff like this. Don't get me wrong, we're going to do a coup. God damn it, read some Chomsky, you ass. 
It's when you read Chomsky for the first time on foreign policy that you really realize what's going on here. When you really realize that uh, we literally operate under the assumption that international law doesn't apply to us and that our default position is we own the world and we run the world. So we get to do whatever we want and it doesn't count as illegal or unethical or immoral. We can kill civilians and it's not terrorism. Why? Because we didn't really mean to do it. We didn't really care once we did it, but we didn't really mean to do it originally, so it's not as bad when we do it. If Iran kills civilians, or if China does, oh my God, that's ground... All right, next. Joe Biden flipped out when he was asked about doing a cognitive test. Watch this. Mr. Vice President, your opponent in this election, President Trump, has made your mental state a campaign topic. And when asked in June if you've been tested um, for cognitive decline, you've responded that you're constantly tested in, in, in effect because you're in situations like this on the campaign trail. But please clarify specifically, have you taken a cognitive No, I haven't taken the test. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. Come on, man. I'm saying you, before you got in this program, you're taking tests where you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think, huh? Are, are you a joke? What do you say to President Trump, who brags about his test and makes your mental state an issue for voters? Well, if he can't figure out the difference between an elephant and a lion, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Did you watch that? Look, come on, man. I, I, I know you're trying to goad me, but, I mean, I'm so forward looking to have an opportunity to sit with the president or stand with the president in debates. There can be plenty of time. And by the way, as I joke with him, you know, it, I, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say something I don't. I, I probably shouldn't say. Anyway, I am. Uh, I am very willing to let the American public judge my physical, mental, my physical as well as my mental fitness. And uh, to, uh, you know, to make a judgment about who I am. Oh, Joe, 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 Joe. You know, I, re- I still am deeply of the belief that if he just hides, he'll win. So go back in the basement, bro. I don't know, I don't know why you're, like, you don't, you don't even need to come out and do interviews. Like, maybe you can do one a week. Maybe. <laughs> but you don't need to. You don't need to. And they're going to, everybody's going to, going to bitch anyway. Like the Republicans are going to come after you for it anyway. But it doesn't matter what you do, they're going to come after you. So why not do whatever the correct strategy is? And the correct strategy is hide, dog. Just hide. Like I don't get, you don't need to do this. You don't need to keep coming out. Just hide. <laughs> I don't get it. What? And, and just so everybody understands, his team has been relatively intelligent on this front. They have been hiding him a decent amount. But I guess that, you know, they feel like we got to do some stuff, right? So there are, you know, more and more examples of, of him popping out here. But every time, he, every time he comes out, there's some moment 
that, you know, goes viral and it's not really for the best reasons. Now, having said that, I, um, I don't think this is as bad as people are making it out to be. Like, there's, you know, this is kind of blowing up, and it's blowing up in left circles, too. And it's like, here we go again. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the main criticism in my mind is that Joe's offended by this, and it's actually a little ridiculous to be offended by that question because everybody knows he's been struggling recently. It's not a secret. So if you're offended at the idea of taking some sort of cognitive ability test, it's like, you know what, man? Who are you kidding? Like, like who are you, why are you pretending? It's not an absurd question. It's actually a perfectly reasonable thing. So, yes, that's a good criticism, I think. But in terms of his reaction, I feel like any normal person would react like that if you're asking them if they're cognitively there. Like, anybody would be like, fuck off, of course I am. Anybody would react like that. So it is almost like a totally normal reaction. And, and his angered response back was like, like that, come on, that's a, not a nice question. That's a dumb question. And how would you like it if I asked you to take a test? And he just so happened to ask the black guy to take a, uh, a test for cocaine and ask him if he's a junkie. Now, people might read into that and say, hey, that's, you're asking a black dude if he's, if he's done cocaine and if he's a junkie. You're the author of the crime bill. Might want to reel it in a little bit there. Um but I don't know. I haven't really seen that reaction per se. I've just seen people being like, whoa, like this, this is a moment here. Um, but I actually kind of like the thing that he said about uh, Trump with the cognitive test. He said, if he can't tell the difference between an elephant and a lion, <laughs> like it's true. Trump was bragging about that test. And it's like, what are you bragging about? Chris Wallace was like making fun of him. He's like, the questions were super easy. Like, what do you, what do you mean? And I, I said the same thing about Biden. Like, the test that Trump took, if Biden took that test, he'd do fine on it. It's not that he wouldn't be, do okay on that test. It's just that he's slower now than he was. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's the issue, is that he's slower now. Um, and I also secretly kind of enjoy when he says, uh, I'm going to say something I shouldn't say. <laughs> I actually enjoy that. I'm going to start doing that now, too. Uh, be on the brink of saying something terrible. <laughs> you know, I'm going to say something I shouldn't say. I'm just, just going to be quiet now. That actually is pretty funny to me. But, yeah, um, I guess the overall point here is that I don't think this this is, instance is as bad as a lot of people are making it out to be. But um, if anybody actually shouldn't get offended by such a question, it's Joe Biden. Like, you know you're struggling, dude. Come on. You have to know you're struggling. But, again, any normal person would respond offended if they really think that they're totally fine. So, I mean, I guess there's a small chance Joe really thinks he's totally fine, but at least everybody around him knows, like, eh, you're fading, dog. You are sundowning. That's for damn sure. But there you have it. And I expect many more moments similar to this leading up to the election. All right, next. RootsAction.org is a left-wing group that backed Bernie Sanders, and they even attacked Joe Biden pretty fiercely in the primary. They called his record abysmal. So, you know, this Roots Action group, I'm not too familiar with them myself, but they seem like they're the real deal. Well, now they're out with a new ad 
similar to the Settle for Biden ads. Remember, I showed you those the other day. Um, this is effectively the same kind of thing. They're not, I don't think they're affiliated with Settle for Biden, but this is a similar kind of ad. They're releasing an ad that argues for the same position of, like, settling for Biden. Um, so this one features Noam Chomsky. Let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. Another four years of Trump may literally lead us to the stage where the survival of organized human society is deeply imperiled. The most important issue that humans have faced in their history is the impending catastrophic climate disaster. According to a new report, experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Trump is the worst person in the world on this issue. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. So we have a choice between trying to find a way to survive or ensuring disaster. That's just the beginning. The traditional left position is you don't vote for, you vote against. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter whether you like Biden or not. That's your personal feelings. Irrelevant. Nobody cares about that. What they care about is what happens to the world. Have to get rid of Trump, keep pressure on Biden, just as Sanders and Associates have been doing. Politics is activism, not taking five minutes to push a button. Look what's happening in the streets of the country. The greatest social movement that has ever developed, led by Black Lives Matter, take Sunrise Movement, managed to put the Green New Deal on the legislative agenda. This generation is going to decide whether the organized human society can survive. So I feel like this even went a step further than the settle for Biden people, because this ad, it, it says literally like a message to the swing states. And Noam Chomsky was talking there to the swing states. So he's actually not making a proactive argument to get out and vote for Biden in non-swing states. He's saying in the swing states. So that, that's an even more nuanced position than the settle for Biden people who just seemed like they were making an argument, settle for Biden no matter where you are. Just go vote for him. Like, that was the settle for Biden position. This goes a step further, and they're like, I don't care what you do if you're in a safe state. Only if you're in a swing state, please, like, vote for him there. Um, so it's a little more nuanced. Now, I will say, it is frustrating that the only time Chomsky gets quoted seems to be when he's saying, vote for a standard Democrat. I would love it if anybody who's part of any group, mainstream, media, or non, or, you know, political activist group, whatever, for the love of God, please quote him when it's not this quote. 
You know, like all the things he said. He famously said that if the Nuremberg Laws were upheld, every post-World War II president would be hanged. He says, you know, the U.S. is the leading terrorist nation. You want to quote him on that? You want to quote him on international law? Like, you want to quote him on uh, what he calls anarcho-syndicalism? Or about how he argues that you have to think of freedom as a tendency in human beings, so we're always kind of striving for more and more freedom, and that eventually this will make its way to not just the political realm, but also the economic realm. And it gets, it gets into the idea of democratizing the workplace. They'd never quote him on those things, because, you know, those things too radical for mainstream society, or so they think. But they love trotting out the vote for the standard Democrat argument. So that is a little frustrating that Chomsky never really gets his due in terms of, um, like, his actual positions. Um, but having said that, listen, again, just like I said in the Settle for Biden segment that we did, I'm not mad at these people. I'm not mad at them at all. Because if you are going to make the argument for Joe Biden, all we ask is that you be honest. That's all the left asks. That's it. Just be honest. Like Nina Turner said, uh, voting for Joe Biden is, e- is like eating half a plate of shit. Now, Trump could be the whole plate of shit, but at least be honest with me and tell me that Joe Biden is a half a plate of shit. Don't tell me he's a delicious fudge brownie, because he's not. So all we ask is for honesty. There's one thing I will take issue with in that ad, though, and it's when Chomsky says we have to keep pressure on Biden as Sanders and his associates are doing. See, there I just flat disagree with Chomsky because Bernie is not doing that. Some of his people are. Like, there's a lot of his delegates that basically staged a coup on Medicare for All. And they're like, we're not going to support the DNC platform if, if you don't have Medicare for All in it. So they're abiding by their values and pushing as hard as they can. And I respect every single one of them that did that. They're my heroes. What Bernie has done recently, don't tell me he's fighting. He's not. He's bending the knee. Now, would I have an issue with Bernie bending the knee in certain circumstances? No, but we're not in those circumstances. So as I've explained to everybody before, he should have gotten more out of Biden. If Bernie met with Biden before he dropped out and he said, listen, man, I will drop out and I will back you as strongly as I possibly can. If, if, here's a list of 10 executive orders. I need you to do these executive orders, promise to do them within the first 100 days. So then you would have put Biden in a position. Biden wants to win. And they're at least doing the fake outreach to the left these days. If Bernie gave him a real ultimatum, support these or don't, you support them, I'll help you. If you don't, I'm just going to walk away. I think he would have supported them, or at the very least, he would have picked, said, I'll do five of the ten. Something. Something. And Bernie could add amazing executive orders that, you know, really brought us real change that we need desperately. Instead of getting tangibles, that would have been tangible. These executive orders in the first hundred days, they could have made a deal. He didn't get any tangibles. And that's my problem with Bernie today, is that you can't just pledge to them and then turn around and ask them for stuff. This is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did, too. I'm going to vote for Biden. And then a couple weeks later, hey, he wouldn't do a meeting with me. You already pledged your support. Why would he meet with you? You have, they have no leverage. Your leverage would be, uh, listen, I'll support you. And I'll try to get all my people to support you, but here are my terms. They don't give them any terms. They're just like, oh, we can kind of vaguely prod them left. Here, let's placate them with this 
freaking unity commission where, by the way, they disregarded most of our important, most important ideas on that. So my point is, don't, let's not pretend like Bernie got everything out of Biden that he could have, because he didn't. And I have nothing but love and respect and adoration for Bernie Sanders. But you have to call a spade a spade. He had the ability to get a lot more out of Joe Biden, and he didn't. So don't tell me, oh, we got to keep pressure on Biden as Sanders and associates are doing. No, some of his associates are doing it. Others aren't, and he's definitely not. He liked Biden a lot more than he liked Hillary Clinton, and so he's willing to overlook the flaws in Biden even more. And that's a problem. And that is ultimately, you know, controlling the Overton window in the spectrum of debate that's allowed. And my job and your job as people who are really on the left and care about these issues, we don't have to play nice as much as Bernie Sanders did. We can be more demanding and more aggressive. Now, we're all individuals, so maybe your line is different from where my line is, and somebody else's line is different from where my line and your line is. We all have our line. But we need to push more aggressively. And um, I guess my point is I'm not mad at anybody who is arguing for settle for Biden or is making these kinds of arguments of like, hey, man, listen, I know he sucks, but here's why I'm doing it. I get it, man. They brought up a great issue of climate change. There's no way Biden would be as bad on climate change compared to Trump. He just wouldn't. He'd be a lot better. That's a fact. So if you want to argue for him as such, I have no problem with that whatsoever. All I ask is that you be honest. And then the second part to that is, all I ask is that if you're on the left and you believe in these issues, stop settling for half a loaf and keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Because unfortunately, so often, people either lie when they're trying to push Biden on you, or they will flat out just stop pushing and just be like, what am I going to do? That's the end of it. No, it can never be, what am I going to do? It's got to be, you have to be demanding, because that's the only way we get change is when people stop taking bullshit and really fight for what they believe in and force those in power to bend their will. You don't bend to them. They bend to you. That's the rule. We can have the strategic conversations. We can talk about, you know, whether or not it is or isn't okay to vote for various actors. But you have to push as hard as you can for as long as you can to really get change or else we'll never get it. And you'll keep being placated and we'll keep getting no change. All right, next. So we have some new findings from Gallup here, and this is on the topic of the media. They say party affiliation remains a key predictor of attitudes about the media. 71% of Republicans, but far fewer Democrats, 22%, and independents, 52%, have an unfavorable opinion of the news media. Across all measures, Republicans express more negative sentiments about the media than do Democrats and independents. And they say attitudes differ by age. Beyond partisanship, age has an independent effect on media attitudes. Older Americans are generally more favorable toward the news media than are their younger counterparts, whereas 44% of Americans age 65 and older have favorable views of the media just 19% of those under age 30 say the same. Okay, so let's, let's talk about a bunch of this stuff here. 
first of all, 71% of Republicans basically think the media is fake news. Um, and 52% of independents say the media is fake news. Um, Democrats trust the media more than anybody else. Now, this is skewed, I believe, because, in my opinion, because you have older, it's really like the older suburban Democrats here who trust the media. So you have like younger leftists are, don't trust it, but the group that trusts the media the most are Democrats, and I'm guessing here that they're also like older and suburban. So it's only 22% of, of Democrats that have an unfavorable opinion of the media. Now that does raise, that really does raise a bunch of issues because it's harder to get through to these people about just how much they're being lied to and propagandized if, that, if they do have some sort of loyalty to mainstream media. Whereas with Republicans, they're totally skeptical. Now, you know, I think that the 71% that have an unfavorable view of the media, if you talk to them deeper, you'll probably find that a lot of them like frickin' One America News Network or Fox News and they hate the others. So they're not, it's not like they're skeptical and also it's a very nuanced, thought-out, intelligent position. No. It's like they don't like the media, but they just don't like it because they're not doing the propaganda that they want them to do. But I think the independence number says a lot. The independence number is 52% have an unfavorable opinion of the media. I think that that really is an indicator more of like uh, how a normie would feel. Like just somebody who's maybe somewhat apolitical, but every now and then will flip on the news and they watch it. And a slight majority are like, mm, I don't think they do a good job. So um, the partisan breakdown is interesting, but I think the age one is even more interesting. Only 19% of people under the age of 30 say they like the media. 19%. Now, most of the people under the age of 30 are on the left. That's what the numbers show. So only 19% of young people like the media. That actually brings me quite a bit of hope because I do think that the younger generations are just generally speaking more skeptical. That's why most young people, when you talk to them, they'll, they know like, you know, my uncle or whoever, they got convinced by a stupid freaking lying right-wing Facebook meme. And it's just like, how do you even fall for that? It's obvious bullshit. So there's this skepticism among the younger generation that doesn't exist as much among the older generation, but it's the degree to which it exists, which is amazing. Only 19% like the media under age 30. So in some ways you also could say that maybe the media is on borrowed time because they have every institutional advantage. On t they're on TV, they get all this ad money, even though their ratings are not that great. They have every institutional advantage in the book, even on YouTube now. They redirect you to CNN or MSNBC, and they try to hide channels like mine where the algorithm screws up. But they might be in trouble in the long run because younger people are not buying what they're selling. But I want to get to one more um, thing that they polled here, because I think this is super interesting. But just remember, guys, polls very recently showed that the media is actually more unpopular than even Donald Trump. Isn't that wild? So the media was at a record level of unpopularity very recently. Now, let me give you the last part of this. They say, 
The Internet is exacerbating problems with the media. Americans are largely overwhelmed by the sheer volume and speed of news coverage, and 78% say the spread of misinformation online is, quote, a major problem, exceeding all other challenges posed by the media environment. Nearly three-quarters of U.S. adults would like to see major Internet companies find ways to exclude false information or hateful expression online. Oh, boy, here we go. So then it occurred to me, look, they used to ask these questions about the media in a different way. But now they're, like, changing the way that they ask the question, the polling companies, I mean. And, like, why would you ask that question? Hey, do you think that maybe something should be done to curb the spread of misinformation online? Well, well, what do you want to be done? You want some sort of ministry of truth? You want some sort of deplatforming or censorship committee to be set up? Which philosopher kings would you like to run that? And notice, when it comes to online, they're asking that question. They're not asking that question when it comes to the main networks. Why wouldn't they ask that? Listen, it was the mainstream media networks that pushed the Iraq war, a war based on lies. Did anybody ever ask, hey, don't you think something should be done about this? This is dangerous. This false information is having real-world consequences. The same people that brought us Russiagate. Oh, my God. The majority of the stories pushed by mainstream media on Russiagate were totally bogus. Totally bogus. Nobody called for accountability. Nobody said, hey, maybe something should be done about this. Nobody says that's misinformation, even though it is. It's misinformation. It's propaganda. So... But they, they always bring it up when it's online. Why? Because, guys, again, it's, it's a, we're seeing a trend here. Anything they view as their competition, they try to shiv you. They try to bury you. So they don't like new media. They don't like the Internet. Are there issues with, you know, fake news online? Of course there is. But that's always been the case. And it's always been the case in mainstream media, too. They have a pretty terrible track record on even more important issues. So it's, it's almost like this weird begging for censorship. And we've already seen, I mean, I told you guys a thousand times, but the way the algorithm works now, it totally screws this show. We doubled in size in the 2016 election. In the, 28, in the 2020 election, we're growing at a snail's pace. Why? Not because anything's different that we're doing. Same guy doing the same show. It is all because the algorithm redirects and, and tries to effectively, unless you're watching this show all the time, I'm not getting recommended to new people. I used to get recommended to new people all the time. They'd watch a video or two, and then they'd subscribe. That never happens anymore. But this is the trend, guys. This is the way we're moving now, where even the polling organizations are like, should something be done about the spread of misinformation? But not from the official outlets, never the official outlets. They're official by definition, even when they're wrong about stuff. Only for, only for the Internet. Only for the Internet. So anyway, um, people generally don't trust the media anymore. And I think they're correct to not trust the media anymore. Final numbers I'll leave you with are are these. 84% say the news media is critical or very important to democracy. So that proves that people are, they're not giving up on the concept. Like obviously we need the media and they need to be watchdogs of people in power. It's important. It's important. But 86% think there's at least a fair amount of political bias in news coverage. So in other words, regular people don't think that the news is just sort of telling them what is. Like, just tell me what's going on. That's it. 
I don't want your spin, and if you're going to give me an opinion, just let me know it's an opinion, and then I'll, you know, see whether or not I agree with you. But people generally, 86%, think that when they're watching the news, it's not just the straight dope. And that's the problem. And that's the problem right there. We have a totally backwards, terrible system. The worst people rise through the ranks and get promoted, like Chuck Todd, who just got promoted, or Nicole Wallace. These are the people, Wolf Blitzer. These are the people who dominate mainstream outlets. And it's because they have establishment groupthink. So the media has never been in a worse position. I'm not surprised by that. They're getting what they deserve in terms of how people feel about them. All right, next. So I want to give everybody a little bit of a state of the race update. Now, normally we look at the real clear politics average of polls to see where we're at and compare it to the last time around. Now, I'm going to give you the 538 polling average. So this is the national polling average 91 days until election, the election. It goes all the way back to Carter. So let's go through this. Biden plus eight. It was Clinton in 2016 plus 7.4. 2012 Obama was up 1.6 on Mitt Romney. 2008 Obama was up 2.2 on John McCain. In 2004, it was basically a dead tie, but Kerry was up over Bush 0.6%. In 2000, Bush was up over Gore plus 7.5%. In 1996, Bill Clinton was up, I believe, over Dole, 16.2%. In 1992, Clinton was leading H.W. Bush by 24.2%. In 88, Dukakis was up 11.1%. In 84, Reagan was up 1.3%. In 1980, Reagan was up 21.5%. And in uh, 1976, Carter was up 27.4%. So again, this is 91 days out before the election um, in all these different respective races. So So there's a bunch of stuff to take away from this. Now, first and foremost is this. Biden and Hillary are basically around the same number. So is it over? No, 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 no. It's not. It's not over. You need to wrap your mind around that and react accordingly. Okay? This race is not over. Now, it is true, though, that Clinton got a bump from, it it was the post it was the post-convention bump that people so often have in politics. So she was only up two to four points. And then with the post-convention bump, she was up 7.4 points at 91 days out before the election in 2016. Okay? Now, Biden didn't have any kind of convention bump because we haven't had a convention. So you could argue that in some ways, and maybe this isn't a direct apples-to-apples comparison because really her natural level was two to four up, and Biden's natural level is nine, nine or ten up. But listen, I'm just giving you the, the dry data here. These are the numbers from 538. You interpret them however you want. Um, so, but Biden and Clinton, close. Now, in my opinion, from everything I've seen thus far, in 2016, Trump was running a superb campaign, hitting all the right issues, hitting Hillary on corruption, on being part of the establishment and the status quo, hitting on the trade deals and the wars, So 
I think he just had a stronger argument in 2016. This time around, he's all over the place. He's pretending Biden's part of Antifa or he's a commie puppet. And, you know, he's hitting him for being far left or whatever. And his strategy sucks. So I see no sign of life from Trump in terms of the strategy, which is why I think Biden's in a much better position than Hillary was. But if you just look at the numbers, it's about the same. Now, um, the other interesting ones to point out, really interesting ones to point out, is that Bush was up over Gore 7.5 points. That's almost exactly what Biden is up over Trump. And Bush lost the popular vote and won the election. And really, if they counted everything and got their, like, the right thing happened, Gore really would have won. Obviously, the Supreme Court had a lot to do with Bush getting it in 2000. There was a whole mess. But, like, so Bush was up 7.5, and really Gore won, even though Bush became president. So that's another one that's kind of a red flag. Um, The other one is Dukakis was up 11.1. And there's never been a president Dukakis. Now has there been? So another thing to keep in mind. You know, but then there are instances of um, the opposite, which is somebody who had the strong lead held the strong lead. Clinton in 1996 is a great example. Now, granted, he was up double what Biden's up. He was up 16 on Dole, but he crushed in that election. So there's a million things you could take away from this. But the overall point is, since 1976, there have actually been even more elections that had wider gaps at this point beforehand. So it's definitely not over. What Trump needs is good debates which can very easily happen. I think he's a better debater than Biden, unless they drug Biden up, in which case Biden could hold his own. Trump needs good debates, and he needs a giant turnaround with COVID-19, obviously, and with the economy, but not some BS like, oh, the stock market's back up. No, that's not going to do it, because people are struggling out there. So anyway, that's my breakdown. The 538 numbers are a lot closer than the real clear politics average of polls. And, and remember, um, 538 was the most accurate in um, 2016 in terms of the numbers. So while every other outlet had Hillary with like a 98% chance to win or something, going into on election day, I believe it was like 71% in favor of Hillary on uh, 538. And anybody who's played poker will tell you, you have a 71% advantage going to the river, you lose three out of 10 times. That happens. And Trump won. So, and by the way, not for nothing, basically almost all of the national polls were pretty accurate in terms of the final numbers in that election. The problem for Hillary was that it was in those specific states that she needed, in the Rust Belt, in those swing states, that's where he kind of chipped away. And even though he lost by like 3 million votes in the whole country, Trump did, he picked off all the support he needed in the Rust Belt, so he won the Electoral College. So the poll point is, the polls weren't even that off. The polls were actually almost totally spot on. They were ever so slightly off. Um, but it's just that the predictions were wrong. And most people thought, well, Hillary's going to win. So the overall predictions were wrong, but the polls were actually not that far off. Anyway, I digress. This is the state of the race now. Do with that information whatever you will. All right, next.
All right, let's finish the show with some fun. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. We're gonna have some fun. This story went viral yesterday. I want to have some fun with you, lovely folks, and this is definitely fun. Trump <laughs> really struggled to say a word. He's got the best words, but he really struggled to say this word. When young Americans experience the breathtaking beauty of the Grand Canyon, when their eyes widen in amazement as old faithful bursts into the sky, when they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias, their love of country grows stronger, and they know that every American has truly a duty to preserve this wondrous inheritance. This wondrous inheritance. <laughs> My favorite is when he gives up on words, like he just stops caring halfway through it. It was a wonderful inheritance. <laughs> He's done that before. If you go watch the UN speech, there are multiple times where he just gives up on the word halfway through. It's glorious. Um, anyway, yes, the part that everybody's talking about is he can't say Yosemite. If you look at the wonderful, the really tremendous Yosemite, and then after that he says, Yosemite. <laughs> like he goes to fix it and he just messes it up even more. <laughs> really incredible, really amazing Yosemites. Yosemites. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, yeah. There there have been like some pretty funny compilations of him messing up like a variety of words that are words that you wouldn't expect people to mess up. You know? Like one that I always messed up was um the Knesset, which is like the Israeli government, but it's pronounced Knesset. And what I would do is I would read it and I'd go, that K is definitely silent. The Knesset. I would call it the Knesset. Like, listen, if, you're, if you've done any kind of public speaking, you know, man, it happens. Like, you mess up. Every now and then you mess up. Every now and then you get a word wrong. Every now and then you have words that you can't say well at all. Like, no matter what I do, I cannot say the word rural. 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 So I can't hate because I got plenty of those words where I just can't, like, some, the way I say it sounds really weird to people. I've been made fun of for when I say banana. I feel like most people say it like that, banana, right? Orange. These are all fruits. For whatever reason, fruit, fruits I have an issue with. Sometimes it's the New Yorkie accent. Like when I say water, I always, it's almost like you throw in an unnecessary U, like W-A-U-T-E-R. So anyway, I'm not hating if you get words wrong every now and then, but it's just so funny the ones that he messes up. Because it's not, like, they're not ones that anybody would ever expect. Yo, Semites. <laughs> Yo, Semites. Anyway, that's funny. Now, I will say, uh, final point on this real quick. Don't, just don't, like, make this the frickin' centerpiece against Trump, please, because this is what happens far too often, is that, like, the media will spend a day and a half bashing him for a misspelling on a tweet, Meanwhile, like, he's literally signing bills that give 83% of tax cuts to the top 1% and does a reverse Robin Hood as he's laughing. The rich are running out the back door with all the money. Like, he's deregulating the clean water rules that we have in effect. Like, there's clean water rules, and he's deregulating and getting rid of them. And, like, instead of focusing on those things, instead of focusing on the fact that 
32% of Americans couldn't make their July housing payment, which is a disaster. Now the media will instead focus on this for like a day and a half. So like priorities, people, priorities, people. Like we can talk about this, we can have some fun with it, but don't, this isn't a center, this isn't a centerpiece of an argument against Trump. Okay. And sometimes when he does the misspellings in the tweets, it's actually makes them even more relatable because regular people look at that, myself included. I'm like, I feel you, dog. I do typos all the time in tweets. <laughs> Again, sometimes with him, it's words you wouldn't expect, so it's kind of sad. But still, that's not, do not use this as a centerpiece in the argument against Trump, because then it does kind of come across as like smug and elitist. Um, there's way more important things to focus on. But yes, I will be laughing for quite a while at Yosemites and Yosemites. All right, next. So here's a free speech issue that surprisingly did not go viral, even though oftentimes these kinds of issues do, you know, strike a nerve and go viral. Voice of San Diego reports that San Diego police have issued 83 tickets to people since 2013 for seditious language, a.k.a. offending a cop. So it's a 102-year-old law, and um, they go on to give examples in the article. One person was rapping. They were rapping, and the officer took offense because they thought the person was rapping and cursing at him. So the officer wrote a ticket. There's another person who's in their own home. And if I'm not mistaken, it's not cheap. Like, there were, like, hundreds of dollars for these tickets. And um, here you have a situation where... And this is all too common, guys. I mean, I've seen so many cases like this where the Constitution is just being totally ignored. Like, we have freedom of speech. It's in the First Amendment. You have states and cities, localities that are just like, yeah, we have some old, you know, primitive law on the book that says you can't trigger an officer. You can't hurt their snowflake feelings. Seditious language. That's not, how does anybody think that's legal or okay? (laughs) So really, this is a story of the cops being the ultimate snowflakes. The cops being anti-free speech. Seditious language. So if you're talking in a way that seems like, oh, maybe you want to overthrow the U.S. government, they can write you a ticket. They can write you a ticket. They could fine you because you're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have a system where corporations run everything and own the politicians. Maybe we shouldn't have a system where we're constantly at war. Maybe we shouldn't have that system. Maybe we should fix it. Maybe we should change it. If they interpret it as you want to overthrow the government, they could write you a ticket. And I'm sure most of the instances are more like this, 83 instances are more like this, where it's like, you hurt the feelings of a police officer. Like, and this gets back to, like, what does it mean to live in a free society? If you get into an argument with an officer, and you call him a name, or you say, hey man, that's stupid. With rules like this that are being enforced, they will punish you simply for talking back to them. 
So this is somebody on a power trip with a badge who is trying to criminalize disagreement or dissent. That's what this is. That's what this is. And again, you know, I, this doesn't even need to be said because it's obvious anytime we talk about real free speech issues these days. I don't see any of the so-called free speech warriors. I don't see Ben Shapiro. I don't see Dave Rubin, Rave Dubin. You know, for a guy who claims to care about the issue so much, whenever it's actually a literal First Amendment free speech issue, like it involves the legality of it, he's nowhere to be found. Remember, remember when there was the hurricane that hit, uh, I believe it was Houston, and in order to get relief money, you had to pledge not to boycott Israel. Weird. He didn't come out and say, whoa, that's against free speech in the First Amendment. That's crazy. I'm not okay with that. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything when Republicans have repeatedly brought up actual laws to criminalize protesting. We just covered one, I think it was in North Carolina, where they said, you need to get a permit in order to protest, but then if you went for a permit, they just wouldn't give you a permit. And then if you showed up, they'd arrest you. That's criminalizing, that's banning free speech and free protest. And none of the free speech warriors said anything. Guys, this is, this is the real assault on free speech. The number one issue where they try to silence people is on pro-Palestinian rights issues. If you say anything mildly critical of Israel, they come after you. There are, there are states that pass anti-BDS laws. So you're legally allowed to vocalize the idea of protesting the United States of America, boycotting your own country, but you can't do it with Israel. What a joke! What a joke! And now we have laws, now we know that there are laws on the books for, to protect the feelings of snowflake cops, and I don't hear anything in the discourse about it. Because again, gets back to the main point on this, which is the only time the right pretends to care about freedom of speech is when they could bash some pink-haired college kid who's creating a safe space on their campus. Then they'll go, oh, we need to be tolerant of people who disagree and have discourse and debate. Can we debate boycotting Israel? No, 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 we can't, we can't do that one. Can we debate whether or not these Confederate statues should be up and protest them in the public? No, 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 not that one either. Not that one either. Can you debate a police officer on the legality of something? No, 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 no. Then you get a ticket for seditious language. What a joke. And by the way, all these people back Trump. And Trump is the guy who just said a thousand times, we should ban flag burning. We should give people a year in jail if they burn the flag. It is literally like the hallmark freedom of speech case. He's like, I disagree with the free speech ruling in that case. What a joke. What hypocrites. Okay. Going to do one more story for you lovely, lovely people. And um, it's going to be the new Trump ad. The new Trump ad. Let me just pull up a new graphic. Here we go. Trump's team released a new anti-Biden ad. Now, remember, they just pulled all of their ads in, like, key swing states. They just pulled them. And so the idea was they're probably regrouping and coming up with new ads because the old ones aren't working. 
So what was the theme of the old ads? The theme of the old ads was let's try to act like he's far left. He's Antifa. He's, you know, a Marxist puppet. Like, that's who Joe Biden is. I'm telling you guys. That's the argument they were making. They pulled the ads because they know the poll numbers are not good for them. So they came up with new ads. Let's see what they got this time. Deep in the heart of Delaware, Joe Biden sits in his basement, alone, hiding, diminished, refusing to answer questions about the crazy far-left ideas he's adopted. A massive tax increase, allowing China and Mexico to steal our jobs. Amnesty for illegal immigrants, letting them compete for American jobs. Biden has no answers, and after five decades of failure, he never will. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Deep in the heart of Delaware, oh. Joe Biden sits in... Sorry about that. <laughs> it replayed, because it was just that bad. So they pulled down the ads that were accusing Biden of being far left, and they replaced them with ads accusing Biden of being far left. They say the old definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I don't know if that was ever really the definition of insanity, but this is definitely an example of trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. My dude, you kept slipping in the polls every time you use this argument. Why would you use this argument again? It's not going to work. It's not going to work. You know what most people's reaction is when you talk about how Biden's in the basement? People are like, yeah. End? (laughs) End? Like, I talk to people, like, relatively apolitical people, and it's always interesting to get their take on political stuff. They're not following this stuff in and out. It's now a common thing among my apolitical friends to be like, yeah, he's in the basement. He should stay there. So the thing I was saying early on about how, Joe, just hide in your good money. Everybody now is like, I don't, yeah, why wouldn't he? Just hide. You're going to be fine. So you can't, that's not, like, you can't attack him for doing something that's perfectly reasonable. I'm going to attack him for staying in the basement. It's like you're attacking him on a strength. That's a good thing that he's hiding in the basement. It's wonderful. What are you doing? So attack him on that, and then, then he goes to the far left, far left Joe Biden. Yeah, tax increases. He's going to tax increases. He's going to increase taxes for corporations. It was 35%. Trump cut it to 21%. Biden wants to make it 28%. That's perfectly reasonable. It's one of the few good things he's in favor of. And I doubt he's going to raise the top uh, marginal rate, but I hope he does. I hope he does. If, what, if he goes back, raises it four percentage points back to like the Obama years? Is that the end of the world? Of course not. Of course not. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can you use arguments that are this terrible? And then he just lies, too. He wants to amnesty the illegal immigrants. Joe, but there's video of Joe Biden years ago arguing for a wall. See, this is the thing. They take, like, Biden's a moderate Republican. There's no way around it. There's a guy who wrote the crime bill. So what has Trump been doing? Oh, he wrote the crime bill, but somehow he's in favor of defunding the police? What? Same thing with this. He wants to amnesty the illegal immigrant. Even though, if anything, his record was a little too harsh on that front. It's just they don't know what they're doing. This is what happens when you have too many voices in the room 
and they're all drunk on One American News Network and Fox News, Trump used to have the instincts to know the weak spots. He knew it with Hillary. He knew it was the corruption. He knew it's that she's the status quo. He knew it was the trade deals. He knew it was the wars. He can't bring up the wars now because Trump's continuing them. Trump's been continuing them. How are you going to attack Biden on the wars when you can end them and you haven't? Even on outsourcing, 93,000 jobs were outsourced in Trump's first year as president. That's even up from Obama when it was 87,000. How are you going to attack him on that when you've been outsourcing? And what are you going to do? You're going to attack him on NAFTA? You did the new NAFTA. You did the new NAFTA. So all the, he can't really do the, like, oh, you're the establishment thing, because now Trump's the establishment too. So what do you do? He's going with the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance is, uh, we don't like the far left and pretend Biden's far left. No signs of life. No signs of life. I can't believe they pulled the ads, regrouped, and then put up basically the same ads, super similar, that are, are terrible arguments. Terrible. Really embarrassing stuff, but at this point, it's becoming expected. All right, y'all. We done. I love you. Everybody stay safe out there. Uh, do me a favor and watch the Kyle and Corn if you haven't. I feel like the Kyle and Corn episode from the other day is um, it's the exact kind of unplug and let's bullshit and have some fun type stuff that people should watch. So if, if you're looking for something before you go to sleep tonight, check out the last Kyle and Corn. Um, it was nice. And, yeah, everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Much love. I'm out.